it is a it is a great uh, privilege for Frenchmen to moderate such a panel this afternoon. Uh, it's quite a challenge to ask a Frenchman to moderate something about competitiveness today, as we have strikes and, and a big mess in Paris. But uh, <laughs> try the screenwriter's guilt. <laughs> so my name is uh, François Ribriard, and I'm very pleased to welcome you here today. Thank you for coming. Uh, before starting our uh, debate, I would like to uh, make a special announcement uh, and remind you that uh, our uh, panel will be a little shorter than uh, planned. Uh, we should uh, end around four, uh, 5, 4, 10 this afternoon. And... Uh, Many of us will attend the, the dinner tonight. I have to remind you that the doors will open at Union Station at 5 and close at 6.15. So please arrive as soon as you can. I remind you that a photo ID is required and th that uh, the dinner tonight is a black tie event. So glad it's uh, well, I, I'd like to start with a, a story. We are uh, this afternoon. We will debate about the uh, relationship between competitiveness and the rule of law. And uh, I like very much the story uh, uh, of uh, that's a favorite story of Rudy Giuliani. It's uh, about our president Sarkozy flying to the U.S. And uh, he flies to the U.S. to know more about uh, uh, rules and principles which work in this country. And uh, so he's flying from uh, France to the U.S. Uh, and on the other side, there's another plane flying from the U.S. to France. And there are two persons in, uh, on the plane, uh, Mrs. Uh, Clinton and Mr. Obama. And uh, Sarkozy says, but w w where are you going? What are you doing? And they say, we are flying to France to know about the principles which do not work. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I would like to introduce you our speakers today. And uh, uh, we will uh, uh, start with uh, Professor Kamiek. Thank you, uh, Professor, to be with us today. Uh, Professor Kamiak uh, holds the chair in constitutional law at Pepperdine Law School. Uh, he came to this position after serving several years as Dean uh, and St. Thomas More Professor of Law of the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and for uh, about two decades on the law faculty at the University of Notre Dame. But we say Notre Dame. I was very surprised when I heard in this country saying Notre Dame. But Notre Dame! Professor Kamiak served uh, uh, Presidents uh, Ronald Reagan and George Bush during 1985-89 uh, as a Constitutional Legal uh, Counsel, Assistant Attorney General, Office of the Legal Counsel, U.S. Department of Justice. Professor, you are also a speaker. Uh, a writer. You wrote three books on the Constitution. Uh, you uh, uh, research spans legal and non-legal subjects, 
you are a frequent guest, uh, guest on national news program as uh, Nightline, the news hour. Um, and also you were uh, one of the few individuals who has received the Distinguished Service Award from two cabinet departments at the Department of Justice in 1987 and Housing and Urban Development in 1983. I have to mention also that uh, you graduated uh, in the University of Southern California uh, and uh, you served on the Law Review and you received the Legion Lex Commandment Prize for Legal Writing. You are a member of the Bar of the U.S. Supreme Court and the State Bars of Illinois and California. And today you will compare the U.S. Supreme Court's jurisprudence to rulings by the EU and I'm sure you will help us to know whether economic liberty is more protected in Europe than it is in this country. Professor Kemik, you have the floor. Thank you. Uh, you're uh, wondering what somebody with all that constitutional baggage is doing in the room, and so am I. Uh, and, uh, but uh, let me share some thoughts with you about uh, the general question that's on the table uh, before us, and that is, uh, is the United States regime, regulatory regime, undermining our competitiveness? Uh, others on the panel, far more expert than myself, will focus on the nature and burdens of things such as Sarbanes-Oxley and the aggressive litigation that occurs thereunder. And one can reasonably speculate that that indeed has some adverse consequences for competitiveness. I want to flip the question a bit and say uh, and focus not on the negative impacts of U.S. policy, but the positive side of European Union policy. The European Union, as you know, is premised upon a number of freedoms, the freedom, uh, freedom of movement of goods, persons, capital, and services. The Union, of course, consists of 27 countries, 13 of which have a common currency, the euro, it accounts for 31% of the world's GDP. It is indeed the largest exporter of any economic entity and 163 of the 500 largest global companies are located in the European Union. Now, a good long time ago, Adam Smith told us in 1784 about the comparative advantage of nations. He arrived at this principle out of an analogy from the family. He, uh, he proposed to, uh, that it was imprudent for a family uh, to make that which it could buy more cheaply from others. And from this rather basic principle, it was derived that a nation that could buy goods more cheaply from others should not engage in manufacturing. Uh, of that same product. And so Smith's theory of national comparative advantage uh, is one that's been with us a long time. The theory, however, is now open to some challenge in a globalized world where firms are finding it easier to engage in uh, multinational uh, uh, production or manufacturing, looking, if you will, for component efficiency and taking advantage of efficiencies that exist across a number of nations. 
And so if it is true that businesses are increasingly looking for multinational or transnational efficiencies, uh, what does that mean for a European Union or a United States comparison? Well, on a very simple matter, you may have noticed we're not more than one nation. And uh, it, uh, absent the South seceding again, which even though we're close to Virginia, I don't recommend, uh, that's not likely to change. And therefore, the European Union, by virtue of its own organizational structure, might be said to be better positioned uh, to take advantage of these multinational uh, competitive efficiencies. Um, in theory, however, there's a wrinkle. Both the United States and the European Union have both legislative and judicial means by which they promote not regulatory competition, but market integration and harmonization. Uh, the United States and European Union, of course, both have antitrust laws that have this as their method. But there are also separate bodies of jurisprudence between the United States and the European Union that promotes market integration. The method in the United States, of course, is the Dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence. And the Dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence, as is well known, precludes overt and to some degree implicit discrimination against interstate commerce. And it largely does this, however, by the adoption of a non-discrimination principle a principle that basically uh, precludes uh, a given state from favoring itself. But notice that the principle does not in any way guarantee deregulation, does not in any way guarantee the minimization of regulation. It merely, to some degree, allows the court to intervene to promote non-discrimination. By contrast, the European Union indulges a principle of mutual recognition such that it is a principle that is aimed at the minimization of quantitative uh, limits on regulatory, I'm, I'm sorry, on uh, market practice. Uh, let me give you an example. The, the most famous case is a French case in honor of our panel chairman, uh, Cassis de Deon, uh, a, a case that may be well familiar to all of you in the room, but it has such wonderful facts it bears repeating. France had a wine with a 20% alcohol content and wanted to export that wine to Germany. The Germans, of course, take great offense at a uh, wine with only 20% alcohol content because there is a minimum alcohol content in Germany of 25%. Well, what were the regulatory arguments against the French wine? Well, of course, the French wine will promote alcoholism. The theory of the German Republic was that if you invite people to drink this diluted liquor, they will just drink more and more of it and ultimately will be addicted. Now, the, the reaction of the European Court of Justice was to look at that putative health justification and basically say, it's stupid. 
The other justification that Germany held out was, well, it's unfair competition because, of course, the alcohol element of the wine is the most expensive element of the wine. And if you allow French wine with this small amount of alcohol to be sold, the Germans will be snookered. Well, the European Court of Justice pointed out that the Germans tend to dilute their beer. And, as a res and even if they didn't dilute their beer, this problem of unfair competition was a make-believe one. And it could be readily handled in any event by just simple labeling requirements. The net result was that the European Court of Justice determined that insofar as the French wine product was lawfully used and marketed there, the regime, that regulatory regime, which was less burdensome and uh, less costly, was going to be go uh, governing in the German Republic. Notice the profound differences, therefore, between our dormant commerce cause clause jurisprudence, which is merely a non-discrimination principle, and the more deregulatory principle of the European Union. One aspect of our dormant commerce clause jurisprudence also bears mentioning at this point, and that is that it's taken a turn for the worse. In the last term, there was a case called United uh, Haulers versus Onita Herkimer, a case that dealt with trash, which most dormant commerce clause cases in the United States deal with. And the Supreme Court decided in an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts that regulatory monopolies would now be exempt from the dormant commerce clause jurisprudence. This came as quite a surprise. The Chief Justice said, and I quote, states and municipalities are not private businesses, far from it, we'll give him that one. He then proceeded to say it does not make sense to regard laws favoring local government and laws favoring private industry with equal skepticism. The Commerce Clause, he said, does not elevate free trade above all other values. That's interesting. Justice Alito, in dissent, had a different view of the matter. He said, we have never treated discriminatory legislation with greater deference simply because the entity uh, uh, favored by that legislation was, was a government-owned enterprise. And let me finish this comparison by just a little bit more of the Alito quote, because I think it goes to the heart of the difference. He said, I see no basis for the court's assumption that discrimination in favor of an in-state facility owned by government is likely to serve legitimate local goals unrelated to protectionism. Experience in other countries where state ownership is more common than it is in this country teaches that governments often discriminate in favor of state-owned businesses by shielding them from international competition, precisely for the purpose of protecting those who derive economic benefits from those businesses, including their employees. Such discrimination, said Justice Alito, 
amounts to economic protectionism in any realistic sense of the term. To summarize, the European Union is a multinational entity that to some degree can take advantage of the regulatory competition that multinational entities present in a Tebow kind of sense. And to the extent that the European Union uh, seeks to harmonize itself and, and prefer market integration over regulatory competition, its method of harmonization is aimed by its very structure and the legal doctrine that is exemplified by the Cassis case toward one that is non, uh, rather one that is deregulatory, one that minimizes the quantitative restriction on the free movement of goods. Whereas the United States is either a single market, thereby losing the advantage of regulatory competition, or its judicial method of harmonization is one that does not promote deregulation, but rather merely promotes non-discrimination, and it might be non-discrimination in the most regulatory fashion. So I end in honor of our chairman once again with Viva la France, Viva la Compagnie. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Kamiak. I think you all have to taste the Cassis de Dijon. It's, it's uh, the French wine. It's very good when you mix it with champagne. <laughs> you get an education on everything. <laughs> uh, thank you for your remarks, and uh, I think you were very right to emphasize the fact that uh, Europe was built uh, with the rule of law. I mean... Uh, the Europe of defense is nothing. It does not exist. Uh, politics, it does not exist on a European level. Europe is economy and law. And an European economy would not exist without uh, the rule of law, the, the harmonization you mentioned, and the jurisprudence of Luxembourg. But we will uh, talk about that later. Thank you, Professor. Um, I would like to introduce you, Professor Epstein. Just short. Uh, quickly. Uh, it will take 10 minutes, I think. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I teach. Okay. Everybody knows you. You are a professor of law at the University of Chicago since 1972 and a fellow of the Hoover Institution since 2000. You are a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences since 1985. You are an editor, you are a member of the California Bar. Uh, you taught so many subjects that uh, uh, it would be hard to me mention all of them today. Uh, I see it goes from corporate taxation to Roman law, including patents, labor law, uh, land use regulations. You. You published a lot. Uh, the uh, I have a list. <laughs> Very impressive uh, 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 list of books. Uh, and uh, I wanted to mention also that you are director of the John Olin Program in Law and uh, Economics. And uh, you are going to talk about the effects of the Sarbanes-Oxley. I am. And 
will address uh, private equity problems. Oh Thank you. Oh, my God. I, I didn't realize that that was what I'm talking about, but I, I probably will talk about something a little bit different. First, I have to give fair notice. Um, I have to go off to California to give an address tomorrow morning, so I'm going to have to take off from this panel at around a quarter to four. Um, it is not a question of protest against my fellow speakers. It's just a question of the JetBlue schedule. And more than anybody else in this room, I'm overjoyed that the President's speech will be at Union Station and not here, because otherwise you'd never be able to get out. It just occurred to me. Anyhow, I'm not quite sure what I'm talking about, but I mean, I will mention Sarbanes-Oxley from a little bit. By the way, that phrase, not sure what I'm talking about, does have two meanings, and we'll dispense with the confusion between them. Uh, but what I want to do is essentially to step back a little bit and, and to find a, sort of figure out what the mental attitude is with respect to the way in which we think about regulation and how that influences international competition and regulation, of which Sarbanes-Oxley turns out to be an important, but by no means the only part. And this is, again, a class of world visions, very similar to the ones that we talked about earlier in the morning, between those people of a general classical liberal orientation that fear government and really believe that private incentives work, and people of a more status variety who think that somehow or other with appropriate command, um, command and control mechanisms, you can organize the way in which the world happens. And what I want to do is to start putting myself into the head of, of a, a somebody who is an aggressive regulator and see if you could figure out what the implicit assumptions are going to be and then what are going to be the practical right reactions when those assumptions go wrong. Because I think it really carries over very neatly to this whole question of international competition with respect to securities markets and international competitiveness. It's a different talk from... Doug's, which was concerned with the internal market in the EU and the United States. I'm talking about the external competition between the two of them. Uh, the first thing I think that the sort of the general believer of the um, modern regulatory state does is they kind of believe that there's an enormous amount of inelasticity with respect to the way in which people respond to regulation. The typical response for the minimum wage is, well, you paid your workers two bucks an hour, you raise it to nine bucks an hour, you pay your workers an extra seven bucks an hour. That's easy. Um, you don't worry about the question of whether or not people are going to abandon that particular form of employment and you don't realize that the greater the changes, the more willing the people are going to be to make sort of major structural changes. And so if you start with the assumption of, of inelasticity of response, what happens is your initial prior is always going to be that more extensive systems of regulation could be put into place than anybody who had a somewhat different view of the world, which starts with the assumption that people individually start with respond to incentives, and as the price of a certain kind of activity goes up, the amount or the willingness to do it goes down. It is also clear that if, in fact, you are of the regulatory variety, when people look at your reactions, they say, well, how are they going to respond to this particular change? Well, it's only a small tax. You're not going to see much of a difference. I think what really happens on the business side is that everybody has the nose of the camel inside the tent model, and they realize that if you use a low tax to get a new tax program established, a higher tax is much easier to implement off a low base than trying to go from zero to 101 leap. So that there are on the regulatory side, not only the effects of the regulation that is currently in place, there is also an anticipation of more and more bad stuff coming out. So I think the first thing about it is that the regulator tends to assume rigidities in business that aren't there and therefore will assume that the movement across jurisdictional boundaries will be less than in fact they really will be. 
The second thing about the regulator in general, in virtually every industry, is they assume that direct consequences matter, indirect consequences don't, and the mere fact that you use the word indirect is treated by them as a sign that all indirect consequences will be small. And so therefore you do not have to worry about the collateral effects on other portions of the market by virtue of what it is that you do. And if I, what I said about the elasticity point was correct, then it's quite clear that the indirectness point is going to be wrong, at least in terms of the regulatory model, because what will happen is that not only will the immediate targets of regulation change, but all of the complements and all of the substitutes of the things that are going to be regulated will start to change as well, and it will cascade outside the scope of regulation very quickly and perhaps set up alternative regimes that are beyond regulation or cripple those things that by indirection turn out to be subject to the regulation in question. And the general view that one starts to take is if you throw a constraint with respect to a system which is pretty self-equilibrating, the larger the constraint, the more the disruptions will take place elsewhere. And indeed, it seems to me that the sort of intellectual framework that you want to have in order to give an intelligent defense of laissez-faire is to say that if you only use observation of the kinds of things that go wrong without regulation, the business that goes bankrupt, and don't use theory to project what's going to happen to other people with lost opportunities and so forth, this visual instantiation of the way in which the world is put together will always lead you to the wrong conclusion. So it's almost a kind of political cognitive bias in which direct observations are overweighted relative to diffuse observation. You can figure out the 10 people who lose jobs when they're fired. You can't figure out who the 100 people are that are going to get jobs if you just let them be reabsorbed into the commodity at large. The third mistake with respect to this model is essentially when you think about regulation, you tend to always think about regulation in good faith, whatever that particular phrase means. And, and what it means, in effect, is it's the converse of the bestiot proposition that Charles Fried gave this morning. He said government is a device in which each person puts his hand into the pocket of his neighbor. Um, that happens all too often, but in fact, the reason you need government is that there are situations where you could create genuine Pareto improvements if you get a system of regulation which leaves everybody better off than before. And the task of a regulator is to figure out whether or not they've created a rising tide for all ships or whether or not they've simply shifted the ballast from one side of the boat to the other so it's about to topple over unless you have some kind of adjustment moving back in the opposite direction. And the good faith guys, essentially what they have concluded, and this is the great mistake in American constitutional law on property rights and trade and economic liberties, is that the presumption of good faith becomes essentially irrefutable. So that you assume that everything you do is going to raise all ships. When the much more accurate description is as follows, the less courts scrutinize the way in which regulation takes place, the more likely it is that you're going to get faction-ridden regulation of exactly the wrong society. So that what you do is you start with this development. The next thing that happens is you put these programs in, to quote, you know, phrase, mild and moderate regulation. And then what you see is that there are dramatic responses. So immediately what you have to do is to put the fortress walls up in some form. So it starts to be one form of regulation, becomes multiple forms of regulation, but the process simply takes off again. And what happens with Sarbanes-Oxley or with any kind of internal program of security regulation is that they get imposed by presidents with short-term political objectives and Congress with no sense whatsoever. And they assume these kinds of low responses and then they see the thunderbolt and they're trying to figure out what it is that they ought to do. 
And so you see, in effect, a substitution away from regulation in the American market. What's going on? Here? Well, the first thing that's going on here is when people thought that the United States was a hospitable country with respect to regulation, they did not worry about sovereign risk as a serious issue. Uh, the moment you worry about sovereign risk, the only rational response for a firm is to essentially diversify their holdings such that they can go from play one sovereign off against another, which means that necessarily you lose a very dominant portion of your market share. Uh, you commit this kind of error and you're running 70 or 80 percent of the initial public offerings and you go back down again, you're never going to come up again because people will be essentially so afraid that you're going to screw things up. Uh, the second thing, of course, is that people move away from the point of high cost situation. And so there are two basic movements that we've seen in the United States, each of which essentially has said that the public exchange markets are not to be trusted by people who are making initial issues. And the first of these things is an effort to create additional set of entities that go between the regulator and the public. What a private equity movement does, in a sense, is you get pension funds, which are not regulated under the SEC and so forth. They gather the capital together, and then they invest through private equity vehicles in various forms. So you get the diversification that is needed on the one hand, but you're running an inefficiency because you have to use two layers in order to achieve this instead of one. There's more friction, and there's actually less public disclosure and awareness that's going on. So it's not as though public equity in a world of essentially unregulated public markets is going to outperform private equity every time. But the moment you change the relative cost, you will see that the co-company will take over Georgia Pacific rather than moving in the opposite direction, which is exactly what happens. So you've got an example of one company, it's a private firm, got $90 billion in equity and it doesn't issue any statements to anybody about anything because they're not obliged to do so. And the second thing is that if you can't hide, then you run. And where do you run? Well, Hong Kong, London, or wherever else it is. And whatever their constitutional order, nobody really cares. What they care about is the expectance of permanence that takes place. And so again, what you start to see is movement out. Well, the question about this is, is what do you do about it? And it's, of course, clear that we have made both mistakes in the securities markets with respect to regulation and Sarbanes-Oxley. And let me just sort of mention two modest sorts of errors. One, with respect to Sarbanes-Oxley, you get great regulators deciding that independent directors are really optimal. Well, I mean, sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. But the question is, why is it that any firm is going to make the wrong mix between independent and inside directors when, in fact, they have to pay the consequences of the mistake. And the moment you regulate, recognize that there's heterogeneity within firms, the idea that you've got minimum standards of one kind or another, all it does is it frightens the bejesus out of everybody and makes it harder to recruit independent directors. Then they have so much work that they're no longer independent because they can only work for one company. This is not what we call progress, even if it turns out that we call it regulation. And you've seen this happen. It is harder to recruit good directors today than it was seven or eight years ago, precisely because we now require that good directors be recruited. And the second point, which I sort of raised earlier, has to do with the question of, well, why do we need the SEC anyhow? This is just a modest, Richard proposal, but I've checked it against a wise general counsel, and I now guarantee that I'm certified under my 1F or 4K or whatever it is I'm supposed to find. Essentially, in 1932, the market did have a large number of small traders, and there was the real question about whether or not they could be built or cheated with wash scales and lots of other things. Uh, and you'd use direct regulation. But what's happened is the regulation is completely obsolete today, whether it's sending you out in paper forms about previous offerings or anything else. What is it that you need to do and to think about? 
Well, regulation does not work well with respect to heterogeneous communities in trading. If you've got adults on the one hand and smart guys on the other, you cannot get a uniform set of rules that works for everybody. And the only way you can stop this is to basically say we have a new policy for the Securities and Exchange Commission. The small investor be damned, said Mr. Vanderbilt. Now, what do we mean by that? Join an equity fund, buy a mutual fund, get somebody to represent you. Uh, we are not going to make our rules for slow pokes. We're going to make our rules for speed demons, and you can hire one for 2% with respect to the money. And at that particular point, when you've got all professionals playing there, you have fiduciary duties of Fidelity and Company and Merrill Lynch to their shareholders, and otherwise you get a hockey rink in which you only have professional skaters instead of everybody from old men in canes and young speeds on these skates. And so you want to essentially slow down the degree of protection that is given, preferably to abolition, so that what you can do is to allow the strong people to flourish in the game in which they want. And keeping the markets essentially heterogeneous and regulated is basically destroys them because it gets rid of the second half of the two great things that discipline markets. One is free entry and the other is free exit. And what we have to do is to have a massive exodus from the markets of those people who cannot play by the optimal rules that are useful for the spectrum of the rules that can play. And to the extent that we have the American securities markets basically giving out free canes to people who have trouble walking, we will discover that the speedsters will find a way to skate on another arena. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Uh, I wish you could address the European Commission in, with such an energetic and pragmatic uh, well, just uh, talk. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I would like to <laughs> I would like to introduce you our third uh, speaker, uh, Mr. George Terwilliger. Uh, George Terwilliger is a senior partner in the Washington, D.C. office of White and Case. Um, Mr. Terwilliger, you uh, combine an illustrious career in a public service with a private practice a record of outstanding client results. Uh, in the, uh, your private practice, uh, you have included some of the world's largest companies and most prominent uh, individuals. Uh, you represented energy, telecommunication, and industrial companies in government investigations and uh, in civil and criminal litigation. Uh, you regularly lead internal uh, investigations in connection with proceedings involving the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission, the Department of Justice, and the other enforcement agencies. Uh, uh, as for your public service, uh, I have to mention that you served as a U.S. presidential appointee in two administrations, including as the Deputy Attorney General, the number two officials of the DOG. Uh, you served briefly as uh, Acting Attorney General of the United States. Uh, you have ten years as a frontline federal prosecutor conducting investigations, trials, and appellate proceedings. Um, you also uh, led uh, the negotiation of a criminal and the civil settlement uh, uh, named BCCI involving uh, 20 parties in the United States and abroad. 
Um, I also have to mention that you served as a counsel to the U.S. Senate investigation. Uh, you were uh, a leader of uh, President Bush, uh, President George W. Bush's legal team during the Florida election recount, and you have been a formal and informal advisor to appointed and elected public uh, officials. And Mr. Terwilliger, you will analyze today the criminalizations of corporations and maybe say a few words about the over-criminalizations. Thank you. Thank you for that um, generous introduction, Mr. Briard. Um, uh, among the, uh, the, the matters that uh, those brilliant marketing people who wrote that uh, uh, had in mind actually was a uh, matter in which I've spent a great deal of time in Paris over the last several years, really about six or seven years, in which a French government-owned enterprise uh, got caught up in a massive amount of civil litigation involving billions of dollars of claims in the United States as well as parallel uh, grand jury investigations. And um, when I first got involved in that case, I thought that um, well, French uh, business people and French government people who were involved at Bercy would certainly understand um, how various and sundry U.S. regulatory regimes uh, used as the basis for alleged criminal violations and civil wrongs uh, would understand that very well, uh, which showed my ignorance. Um, because when I went over there, I found however difficult it may be to go into a boardroom in the United States and explain the intricacies and alleged justifications for a grand jury investigation of a business. It is that much more difficult to do in Europe, where many of these concepts, despite our perhaps common misconceptions of how the Europeans regulate themselves, are in fact uh, quite foreign to them uh, in more than the nationalistic sense. And I was actually struck uh, in the Wall Street Journal this week in an article about uh, a group that was recommending to the EU and to European governments uh, some regulatory changes uh, having to do with securitized loans for reasons that you're all aware of. Um, this, uh, this quote came out of this group of economists and policymakers who wrote this report market-driven but regulatory and supervisory authority-guided approaches are necessary for successful financial risk management. This regulation must be governed by principles and focused on maintaining levels of capital commensurate with the risks undertaken. It shouldn't be based on a rigid set of rules that would stifle innovation. Um, I'm sure many of you would join me in just wishing that some member of Congress leading a congressional committee considering uh, legislation such as that that became Sarbanes-Oxley would stand up and make a similar statement. Um, I, uh, I cannot compete with uh, either the uh, intellect or the entertainment value that we heard from uh, uh, the previous two speakers, and I won't sp presume to speak for my friend David, but um, I, I want to talk about this a little bit, if I might, um, uh, from the uh, workaday world uh, that I am in uh, on a day-in and day-out basis with business people and how where we are actually affects what people do and how it compares 
uh, to the psyche of businessmen uh, overseas in the environment that they expect uh, to work in and uh, perhaps explain a little bit of why they are rather surprised, as my French clients were, about what they may face here. Um, I'd like to begin by, by looking just briefly at some very uh, fundamental uh, concepts and principles. Um, I think it would do well uh, for us as a, as a nation, as policymakers, as legislators, um, to ask ourselves what is the uh, purpose of an enforcement regime, particularly one that criminalizes uh, conduct? What is it that it's supposed to provide? And I think the correct answer to that question is found in reminding ourselves of what is the essential role of government itself in regard to commerce. The government's role is, or ought to be, to promote commerce. At its core, that role includes an enforcement regime that, of course, protects the means and instrumentalities that are necessary to commerce, preventing frauds on, on the market, protecting the engines of commerce, transportation, uh, communication, finance, and banking, uh, honest and free markets themselves, and protecting, frankly, the integrity of courts that are necessary to the orderly resolution of business dispute. Um, we know that the founders were extremely concerned that commerce uh, should flourish, and it was, in fact, one of the fundamental reasons to establish the federal government. Uh, Hamilton wrote that the prosperity of commerce is now perceived and acknowledged by all enlightened statesmen to be the most useful as well as the most productive source of national wealth and has accordingly become a primary object of their political cares. Uh, sometimes today it would be hard to tell. Um, commerce doesn't exist to support government. Um, government exists to support commerce. To the extent that the criminal law and other draconian enforcement uh, methods are used to protect the means and instrumentalities of commerce, such use could be seen as consistent with the traditional purposes of both government and the use of criminal law. Criminal law, as we all know, traditionally has distinguished um, illegitimate conduct that is intentionally undertaken in violation of the law from legitimate con uh, conduct. But the great divide that exists today in the, in the world of enforcement of regulation in the uh, commercial context is that today criminal law and other enforcement mechanisms that are equal to it in terms of, of severity um, are used to regulate what is otherwise legitimate commercial activity. Um, such that, for example, in the environmental arena, which just so lends itself to, uh, to this criticism, um, we all, I think, would agree with the social goal of eliminating to a reasonable extent, uh, or at least as reasonable uh, an extent as possible, uh, the introduction of foreign substances into the air and water that we all have to use. Um, but the government gives people permits to do this. You aren't allowed to pollute in the United States. Um, but if you pollute too much in violation of a permitted level, then you um, not only may pay a fine, but in fact individuals may go to jail and corporations may suffer draconian uh, consequences. The difference between those two, legitimately polluting under a permitted level and, and permitted, permit, polluting unlawfully 
um, in violation of a permit can be measured in parts per million and as you all know from the cases, experts can produce reams of material on the disagreement, on disagreements about whether or not, in fact, a level has been exceeded. Um, so where do we find our, ourselves today? This trend of regulating legitimate commercial activity um, with criminal enforcement mechanisms and through draconian enforcement uh, proceedings uh, brought us up to that in the post-Enron environment, we got socks. Um, I was on a panel the day uh, part of Sarbanes-Oxley was marked up in front of Senator Biden's uh, Judiciary Committee. The committee had to stop the markup section of the legislation to run over to the floor of the Senate and vote for the entire bill. Um, now, does that suggest there was a rush to judgment? I'll, I'll leave you to your own devices. Uh, but SOX has been celebrated as a necessary response to corporate excesses. Um, but I think it's better seen as um, further evidence of the loss of sight of this great divide between using enforcement mechanisms to protect the means and instrumentalities necessary to commerce and using these self-same mechanisms to, in fact, regulate behavior. What, what that law does is familiar to you all, and I'm not going to go through it in great uh, detail, but I will um, dwell for just a moment on a few terms from the statute. As you know, various certifications are required um, of executives and other professionals, both within companies and outside, as part of what's, uh, what's come to be uh, recognized as the SOX process. And terminology is used there, such as fairly represents the financial operations of the company. Um, that there are systems and controls that are appropriate to the, the, the business such that business leaders can assure themselves that the financial statements will fairly represent. Um, the concept of materiality um, is replete uh, throughout the, the law. Uh, what CEOs and others who have to certify under SOX are really required to do, though, is bet on expert opinions. And the experts themselves are very worried about their own liability when they, when they give those opinions, which tends to create a good deal of tension uh, between auditors uh, and their clients. Um, a, uh, a subcommittee report of a group looking into this said, there are simply today too many sources of authoritative accounting guidance. Well, that is no lie. Um, preparers, auditors, and other participants, continuing the quote, are sometimes penalized for improving their understanding and interpretation of accounting standards over time. This trend of necessity winds up causing people to become even more risk-averse than they might otherwise be in a highly litigious society. Compliance risk assessments are given on natural weight in business decision-making. Business leaders are more likely to make decisions without lawyers and to exclude lawyers from the early stages of business discussions because lawyers are being forced into the position of being Dr. No when it comes to uh, innovation and the other key elements of entrepreneurial risk-taking. And the, all of these developments collectively, it seems to me, 
are having the effect, and I, and I think this is now beginning to, these ideas beginning to gain some traction, really are having an effect on competitiveness. And to take Professor Epstein's uh, point in, uh, about um, moving away from over-regulated environments uh, to environments where the, the impediments to entrepreneurial risk-taking are less, uh, Mr. Briard can speak to this. I, I read an article uh, while I was in France on one occasion where a number of young French entrepreneurs were interviewed about why they were starting their businesses in Ireland. And they said it's very simple. Um, I don't have to deal with all of the labor requirements and the other uh, impediments uh, to the operation of my business in Ireland that I have to deal with in France. So I'm going there. Now, of course, President Sarkozy is trying to do something about that. Um, and, it's, and it's a sea change. But before we laugh at France um, in terms of having strikes and, and the sort of, we need to take a hard look at ourselves and where we have put ourselves today vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world in introducing impediments to entrepreneurial risk-taking. Um, there is empirical evidence to support the fact that the net effect of this criminalization of business regulation, as epitomized, I think, by Sox, is having that effect. Uh, Bill Donaldson observed uh, not too long ago that Sox is creating a huge preoccupation with the dangers and risks of making the slightest mistake as opposed to taking a reasonable approach to assessing business risk. He said, people are confusing now business risk-taking with legal risk-taking, which is a mistake. Um, even Senator Schumer, joining with uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, commissioned a report on New York City's competitiveness for reasons that are obvious. And uh, that report concluded that enforcement efforts have effectively criminalized conduct assumed to be permissible, causing market participants to adopt costly, risk-averse behavior and bear the associated opportunity costs. Regulatory trends in the United States are actually starting to damage the competitiveness of financial institutions doing business domestically. Um, and interestingly enough, in what might have seemed in the immediate post-Enron environment to seem a heretical, if not radical, statement, that report said criminal enforcement against companies should be a last resort. And a study recently conducted uh, by uh, the American Enterprise Institute concluded that um, American firms um, are becoming, and American markets are becoming less competitive even compared uh, to their UK um, counterparts. So where does this leave us uh, in terms of uh, where we go from here? Um, Doug asked me at the, uh, uh, when we were talking informally at the outset of the panel, what really can come out of discussions like this? And um, uh, I'm an optimistic person by nature. I don't think we're totally tilting at a windmill here. Um, but when you think about what leads Congress to pass something like SOX, I think it is very, very difficult to conclude that given whatever the next scandal is, which may be in uh, uh, mortgage derivatives, uh, that Congress will not respond with something equally ill-advised. Um, but 
the, what we can do to try to prevent that is to remind ourselves of some fundamental things and demand that our policymakers start looking at fundamental issues, such as the role of government in protecting the means and ins instrumentalities of commerce and not um, being involved in setting up op unnecessary obstacles uh, to commerce. I want to observe in, uh, in uh, closing that um, I have sometimes when uh, uh, talking about this issue been misinterpreted to say, well, you're just a, you know, a defense attorney for uh, businesses and you, know, you would condone uh, uh, fraud in the marketplace and the kind of shenanigans that went on at Enron and, and uh, so forth. That's not true at all as I'm sure uh, with many of you uh, in this room join me in recognizing that a corrupt market cannot be, by definition, a free market. There is certainly a role for government in protecting um, the marketplace from, from fraud and fraud stirs. Um, that being said, though, when we move beyond that, when we lose sight of the fundamental distinction between protecting the means and instrumentalities of commerce and move into however lofty the goal might be, using these enforcement mechanisms as regulatory tools, we lose sight of those things which are necessary to maintain our competitiveness. The other thing I'll say in closing that I do not uh, hear in the political discourse on these issues is that a recognition that businesses and corporations are not inherently evil. They are the, instead the primary employers of people and the creators of the wealth and unparalleled wealth in human history uh, that our people enjoy today. A strong economy is of course essential to the health of our country, our people, and our democratic government and the institutions that it tries to, uh, to promote. If we were to just simply introduce a recognition of that into policy decisions both at the legislative level and at the enforcement level, we would go a long way towards beginning to rein in our tendency to try to correct every human misdeed that somebody thinks they can get away with and in fact do for, uh, usually for a limited period of time with some kind of a regulation and draconian penalty that it would attach to that in the future. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Terwilliger, for your very uh, interesting and uh, realistic remarks. Uh, uh, I'd like to give the floor to our fourth uh, speaker before uh, uh, a debate between us and the questions from the audience. Um, I'd like to introduce you the Honorable David uh, Alfauser, uh, who is the Managing Director uh, of UBS and serves as a General Counsel of the Investment Bank and as a member of the Group Managing Board of the company. Uh, Mr. Alfauser also serves as a Fellow of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a Director of the Atlantic uh, Council. Uh, prior to joining UBS, uh, Mr. Alfaiser was the General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Treasury 
he served at the Treasury Department's representative on the Department of Justice Corporate for Task Force. He was the chairman of the NSC uh, Coordinating Committee on Terrorist Financing Council to the President's Working Group on Financial Markets and as a board member and general counsel of the Federal Financing Bank. Uh, while at Treasury, uh, Mr. Alfeuser uh, worked on a wide range of issues including Iraq and Afghanistan reconstructions, uh, sovereign debt uh, restructuring, tax reform, money laundering, China trade, and reform of international financial institutions. Uh, for his public service, uh, he was awarded the Treasury Department's highest honor, the Alexander Hamilton Award, and he has been uh, cited for his public service with awards for leadership and distinction in diplomacy, intelligence and law enforcement by the U.S. Department of State, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the CIA and the U.S. Secret Service. Before his, uh, prior to his uh, public service, Mr. Alfeiser practiced law and he was a senior partner and member of the executive committee of the law firm of Williams and Connolly in Washington, D.C. His areas of practice included securities, corporate governments, litigation and executive and legislative branch investigation. Uh, Mr. Alfeuser, you will examine the competition between the U.S. exchanges and the other exchanges with respect to listings, how the U.S. is uh, maybe perhaps losing ground and the reasons for these uh, trends. I give you the floor. Thank you. I'm really here as a witness uh, rather than a lecturer or a judge since I am now counsel to one of the most heavily regulated industries in the globe. Um, but it is true, uh, we, um, while it is true we are the uh, intended target and sometime victim of unintended consequence of laws, the truth be told, uh, we like laws. Uh, and where they can bring clarity um, and definition and remove arbitrariness, particularly in maturing economies like the BRIC economies, we're all in favor of it. So we take a slightly contrarian view about Sarbanes-Oxley and Sarbanes-Oxley uh, uh, progeny around the globe, and we sort of celebrate them, but I want to articulate why. It is to be sure, however, that uh, unintended consequences should be thought of, and uh, it's a... Uh, there's a popular Lily Tomlin line which goes something like this. When we were all young, we always wished we'd be somebody someday. Uh, now that we're older, we only wish we'd been a little more specific about it. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, 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 that's true for every piece of legislation that's passed in the city. Uh, I have to tell you, I was at Treasury when Sarbanes-Oxley was passed and was a material voice in its passage, but as I reflect upon it, of course it's clunky, of course it's costly, of course it's burdensome in application, of course it's sometimes threatening, and it indeed is sometimes unfair. Um, that's all relevant, uh, but it's not defining. And we flatter ourselves as lawyers if we think it's defining when you look at U.S. competitiveness, because there are, there are other much more important dynamics um, that are operating in the world. 
uh, our business, my business right now, is really trying to attract um, capital through my, my bank as an intermediary. And what we hear, to be sure, is some discord out there about private litigation in the U.S. and too much complexity in the U.S. regulatory system. But what we principally hear about is the opportunity that abounds abroad. And that's really what the U.S. competitive system is competing against. When you talk to folks who are looking to start an IPO in Asia, for example, a couple of very important and, I think, interesting things that occupy their minds the most. First, they like to deal in the same time zone. It's as simple as that. If they're trying to choose whether to make an offering in Hong Kong, Beijing, or New York, that's an easy box to check. Second, they like the idea that the people speak the same language they do. Again, if you're making an offering in Hong Kong and you're Chinese, it's more attractive to do it there than in New York. Third, as you all know, there's been an astounding accum accumulation of wealth around the world. And it's not concentrated in the U.S. and it's not banked in the U.S. anymore for security purposes, political or otherwise. Uh, fourth, the infrastructures around the world to engage in capital market trading have improved exponentially. Indeed, that's not just the case in, in, in uh, domestic markets, but increasingly we see the borders breaking down between domestic markets and a convergence and a merger of international markets. The New York Stock Exchange, various mergers with uh, European markets is the best example of that. So there's a lot of liquidity that's offered and a lot more transparency that's offered internationally than there ever was before. We used to have a monopoly on that. Our system used to have a monopoly on that. We no longer have that monopoly. Finally, one of the reasons folks came to the U.S. capital markets mostly, and maybe this is really what defined why it was a magnet for so long, is we offered effectively premiums. Premiums on your offerings. It won't be one times book. It won't be five times book. It'll probably be between 10 and 20 times book. And in some cases in the internet bubble, of course, 50 times book. But the reason for that is there was a perception not only of liquidity, but of transparency. And the transparency was compelled and forced by law. And so the law actually, and good governance actually created a unique premium here in the United States. It's no longer the case. The regulatory regimes, uh, although not up to snuff to U.S. regimes, have become more mature around the globe. And there's more transparency for offerings and capital market movements around the globe. And with that enhanced transparency and, and sense of good governance, maybe not to the excessive levels of Sarbanes-Oxley, um, it, it, uh, uh, capital has migrated or been attracted. And indeed, we handled an offering last week in China for a company called PetroChina. It was 4,000% oversubscribed, and it sold at a PE of 57. Now, that's what you can do now in the world outside the U.S. without ever getting to the equation of whether the law is a drag. Now, of course, the law is a drag, but it's not all a drag. There have been some positive aspects of Sarbanes-Oxley. Some of them are the same reasons why it was passed when I was in the government. First, it did reorient us back to first principles. George alluded to a lot of this. A lot of this. An independent board, an independent auditor, a CEO who's willing to sign the bottom line and a certification that says, I know what my financials mean, and what they mean is what I tell you. And then finally, a CEO who's also going to be held responsible for whether or not there are adequate controls that support that certification. Those should be no-brainers. 
And that is Sarbanes-Oxley. To the extent it's taken further and it, it, it's, it's become, as I said earlier, sort of clunky and has a lot of, um, a lot of excesses, that can be tweaked. And, in fact, that's the recommendation of the Paulson Commission, of the Paulson Report, which is not, to, of course, to get rid of it because of these good aspects and first principles I articulated, uh, but rather to streamline it and perhaps make it into a Cadillac from the Chevrolet that it is right now. Um, there's a second reason why Sarbanes-Oxley was good for something like a galactic enterprise like the place I work for, which it, it actually helped us, to, forced us, compelled us to look inward, and we're not unique in, in that, to take a look at what our true operational risks were, to see where the banana peels were, to see where our conflicts might be with clients in the way that we navigate the capital markets, and to be compelled to address them. It was actually a therapeutic, productive, and positive exercise. Now, it's easy for me to say that because UBS can afford that. The small guy can't afford that. And actually, it turned into a competitive advantage for us because we could afford that. That's a simple truth. And we share that with the Secretary of Treasury. As a matter of fact, part of my role uh, as general counsel of the company is we do some politicking here in town, and we go to see the Treasury Secretary, and we present our issues. Now, the Secretary, who I knew and served, asked my last CEO, what do you think about Sarbanes-Oxley? And he was ready to be hit over the head with a mallet because he asked that question of all CEOs and he gets a predictable response. Well, he was floored because we said we think it's great. Great for the reasons I articulated to you and great for another reason. We operate in 80, 80 jurisdictions around the globe. Part of my function is not just legal, but I have 1,500 compliance officers that report to me around the globe. There's a huge compliance cost in getting 80 different rules right. And there's a huge compliance cost in getting them wrong. So I have to invest, if you will, 80-fold over trying to address different laws and different regimes. What Sarbanes-Oxley has done is begun to act like a magnet. And what's migrating towards its standards, maybe not, not the highest of, of its standards, are regimes around the world who actually perceive the principle of good governments as a competitive advantage. The premium I spoke to you about earlier about capital. So it's not totally a bad report on Sarbanes-Oxley. It has had a global affirming impact. But of course, like I said, there's plenty of work to be done to make it streamlined and to make it fair for the smaller enterprise that cannot do what a UBS can do. Uh, to be sure, when you go around the world, you do hear a lot of talk about the negative aspects of U.S. legal and regulatory and ethical regimes. Uh, principally, the first thing you hear is about the complexity. That is a consequence, a natural consequence of our federalism. Um, and, uh, if you will, the Elliott Spitzer phenomenon. I, it's not just the SEC I have to deal with, Mr. Alfauser. It's 50 different states. And the erosion, if you will, of the doctrine of preemption and the view that there are 50 different views of the law and 50 different kinds of behavior that have to be um, somehow merged into um, and harmonized into ha how you approach the U.S. jurisdiction. So complexity is the first thing that is on their mind. The second thing that is on their mind is, of course, expansive private litigation. I don't have to tell you more about that. This is one of the reasons why the Federalist Society uh, was founded. Um, third... Of course, there's a complaint, a common complaint. It's a convenient complaint that we are too rules-based and not enough principally based. 
That is, we have an enforcement regime orientation of our regulations rather than a prudential regime of, of orientation. And it is true, but you can overstate the impact of that. As I told you about five minutes ago, in the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, we need regulatory regimes that mature. We need clarity of law. I don't really want to be subject to a principled regime where regulators who themselves are maturing in their sophistication of how to deal with the capital markets are largely free with abandon to define whether what you're doing is right or wrong. It's hard to challenge the arbitrariness or the capriciousness of a regulator under a principles-based only regime, which gives them the freedom to look at capital markets, for example, in the same manner that the Supreme Court here looks at obscenity. You know it when you see it, and we'll tell you when we tell you. Um, so, uh, for example, there's a lot of concern today for the proliferation of CFIUS-like modeled regulatory regimes around the world. In response, a political response backlash against Dubai ports and against the China National Oil Company, Chevron, frustrated merger or acquisition. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of concern over the Treasury Department that this proliferation of FDI laws, that is laws that regulate foreign direct investment, is a, a, a bad uh, and adverse development in uh, global capital markets. I take a totally different view. It's terrific. For the first time, at least I can benchmark a right that I can assert in a China if a deal that we have is denied in an otherwise opaque regulatory regime. So actually, uh, legal rules and laws, and I think I'm, I'm giving you first principles, which you know, but it's worth stating up here in a panel that's largely devoted to criticisms of Sarbanes-Oxley, are helpful. They're not adverse if they're intelligent, and if they're always subject to remolding, uh, as Richard said, now that he's left, I can quote him, um, uh, <laughs> as Richard suggested. Um, there's another part of the dialogue that you hear when you're abroad with foreign clients about why they're averse to come into the U.S. And frankly, it's not illegal as much as it is a, a political sentiment. It's the sense, if you will, the Dubai port sense of xenophobia in the America about concern for the increasing um, uh, potential adverse strategic impact of sovereign wealth funds and the like investing in the U.S. Uh, there is concern for the rule of law protecting property rights and there is concern for, for discrimination in, um, in access to uh, economic opportunity. Um, that's a bad way to be viewed. Uh, to me, uh, that's the number one legal political issue we need to address. We need to have our markets attractive uh, to private and state capitalism funds. We, because money, when money gets invested here, and I know this in particular as a derivative of my work on the terrorist financing task force for the NSC. As money gets invested here, we not only learn more about each other, but our interests become increasingly allied. And so if I had a panacea to the Sarbanes-Oxley, the perception of Sarbanes-Oxley problem, it's as simple as I think what Richard said. Maybe you don't need an SEC, but what you do need is a law that promotes transparency, um, and in the exercise of fiduciary duty. If you have those two principles and you create a law which uh, is a safe harbor and it's probably quixotic 
uh, is a safe harbor if you fall within those two principles. Um, then we're going to have free capital movements and the U.S. will be competitive again. But again, I'm going to end on one note. Uh, we flatter ourselves as lawyers if we think the principal problem is our legal regime. It isn't. The simple truth is the world is getting smarter, more competitive, and flatter. Thank you. Okay, we still have about, I think, uh, 20 minutes. Before, before giving the floor to the audience, I would like to ask the uh, three speakers about uh, the, the purposes of uh, regulation. When I heard your talks, I clearly understood that uh, actually we have to face the same issues on both sides of the uh, Atlantic. Uh, and uh, we have to ask ourselves about the, the purposes of regulation, economic regulation, about the means, and about the equilibrium uh, to be um, reached uh, between uh, different uh, goals. And uh, you know that uh, when uh, Europe uh, talks about competitiveness, it is rarely competitiveness uh, in itself. Uh, there are thousands of documents, uh, including legal documents in Brussels, uh, which uh, relate competitiveness and what we call cohesion, social cohesion. And you know that the French president, uh, who should have a leading role uh, in, in, the, in the future for Europe, uh, is quite reluctant, and we all were very surprised and disappointed in a way, is reluctant to uh, leave uh, in, in the uh, EU constitutional treaty the mention of free trade and free competition. So, to get back to my question, do you all agree on the purposes of regulation, economic regulation, which is free trade and free competition? What are your opinions? You know, I, uh, I think there's enormously valuable things that have been said both in favor of regulation and law as uh, providing us with a standard by which we can uh, deal in good faith with each other. Uh, the primary thing that I th think uh, from my own perspective uh, a presentation that I would like to ask my fellow panelists about and yourself about, uh, uh, Francois, is this, that in the United States we simply do not have, since the 1930s, a judicial system that is oriented toward favoring the marketplace that protects economic rights, property rights, or economic liberties anywhere close to our fascination with personal and civil liberties. We've just lived with this dichotomy. It's a dichotomy that has never been fully explainable to me and one that now when we're in a worldwide global competition seems even less explainable when the European Union has been able to construct a body of jurisprudence that, as I tried to illustrate with just one small case, a body of jurisprudence that harmonizes its market 
that promotes the free movement of goods internally within the union as and the and it does it by means of a basically a deregulatory perspective one that minimizes the limitations that regulation results in terms of quantitative restrictions that's a deregulatory perspective we have nothing close to that judicially in the united states so the absence of a judicial body that is able to weed out the heavy hand of regulation where it is unneeded in any principled fashion i guess seems to me to be a a very competitive defect and then one other related part to that is something david mentioned about a complaint that he often hears about the united states market namely that we are so rule bound rather than performance standard bound and here again the european union comparison is interesting because you have the legislative body of the european union having the capacity to issue directives which are effectively performance based directives allowing uh, the individual nation states within the union to respond to the regulatory interest whether it be environmental or health or whatever that interest may be in its own contextual way and that seems to me to be two primary advantages of competitiveness that the european union structure has created that we lack and i would welcome the response of my fellow panelists or anyone here thank you well i i make two uh observations and try to bring together um your question francois and dogs together with a an observation about what david said um i don't think there's a lot of space um between what david and i were talking about there may be a lot of space between how we view the actual and practical effect of sarbanes on uh on business behavior but it's it's absolutely uh certain that to answer your question that the goal of regulation should be um freer trade freer markets and it's certainly true as david said that um transparency in whatever process uh is used in the formation of capital promotes investor confidence that was the purpose of the securities acts to begin with um but um the road to hell is paved with such good intentions and the the fact of the matter is that um we are because and i dug puts his uh, uh finger on a very very important element of this i think we are at a competitive disadvantage being in this essentially rule based uh society where our judicial system does not attach primacy to the economic factors uh that flow from its decisions and i'll give you a very brief real world example of that um in france there is a um there is a business agreement called a contract of portage um uh or as we called them in the uh, midst of litigation concerning them portage agreements or as the judge took to calling them portage or fronting agreements um which is exactly what they are not these are in, in essence although it's very complex but in essence cross put and call agreements whereby 
uh, a financing entity can reduce the risk of an investment uh, for an investor by agreeing to buy back and have the authority to put uh, that same interest elsewhere at some point during the life of this agreement. In France, as a cultural matter, such agreements are confidential um, because you don't want other investors to know about them. Um, we spent five years litigating um, a multi-billion dollar lawsuit uh, over whether these were in fact illegal parking agreements that were undisclosed to other parties of the transaction. If the court involved in that case had taken the least bit of time to take Doug's suggestion and consider the economic consequences of, in essence, considering these foreign agreements without uh, any legitimacy uh, under U.S. law whatsoever, um, the, uh, the, uh, not only would the result perhaps have been different, uh, although the matter was eventually settled, as they most often are. But more importantly, the view of foreign business people um, about the impact of that dispute on their willingness to come and do business in the United States and invest their money here might have been markedly different. Just very, very briefly, um, first, of course, the purpose must be to promote free trade and the development of personal property rights. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the country that passes the law isn't doing it for its own parochial purposes. It just happens to be serendipitous that most of us conclude that it's in the U.S. interest to have free trade and lower borders. Um, second, uh, it is true that we are at the following competitive disadvantage, but I don't think it's a modern development. Um, and that is, in America, for the most part, um, every loss is characterized as a potential legal wrong. Um, and uh, I think that's been a part of our jurisprudence for a long time. I'm not sure whether that disadvantage in our um, legal presumptions uh, and, and bias uh, is new. Third thing, I'm, I'm not as intoxicated, and maybe that's being unfair to you, intoxicated with the EU developments as, uh, as what it sounds like from your, uh, your talk, Doug. Um, I think the prudential approach, this is one of these things where you, you better be careful. You may get what you ask for. It's, it's what I said in my brief statements. The prudential approach gives great license and liberty and empowers the bureaucracy. It, it, it lacks a certain amount of black and white clarity. Now, too much black and white clarity is too much, of course. I'm a little concerned about the discretion that can be exercised by uh, bureaucrats. Uh, having been one myself for a while, I was stunned by how much discretion I had. It was actually sobering how much discretion you have when you're general counsel of the Treasury Department and the administrator of, of thousands of regulations, which basically is Congress saying, here, give it to Mikey. He'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> So uh, I'm, I'm not as intoxicated about the prudential approach as, as you, you think. And I think, uh, I think the, more cl the clearer and more black and white we are, the more attractive we are because people know what their rights are. Well, thank you. Uh, I think uh, regarding the EU-US uh, 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 comparison, I think we would have to uh, meet again in 2010. You know that the European leaders decided in Lisbon uh, in 2000 that uh, 2010 was the, the year uh, to reach, uh, I quote, the most dynamic and competitive knowledge-based economy in the world. So we will see whether they succeeded or not. I think it's time for uh, questions from the audience. Uh, 
uh, we still have about uh, 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, Marta. Yeah. I'm Marta Varela, Hunter College. I hope I'm not off base in my question, but the comments of the panel remind me of Hegel's statement, the perfect is the enemy of the good, in the sense that on the one hand, you're talking about the uh, Sarbanes-Oxley regime as having had a positive effect on regimes around the world in terms of advancing transparency, but on the other hand, since it is so freight-laden with um, administrative costs, the lawyers that spend hours toiling trying to figure out exactly how to comply with it, that it acts against the little guy. And so I guess um, Francois's comment about the idea of competitiveness in the European system, including a model of social cohesion, is very intriguing to me because at some level I'm wondering whether in our uh, rush to be perfect in our regulatory scheme in the United States, whether we're not to some extent forgetting that what has made us uh, a, a, a magnet for uh, immigrants around the world, and we remain a net immigration country, has been the opportunities that the little guy enjoys, um, which it seems as the world becomes flatter, as you said, um, becomes lost in the larger picture. So I'm wondering whether perhaps in the United States we need to perhaps introduce a little bit more of that sense of the uh, social cohesion aspects of business regulation to the advantage of the maintenance of ideas, our ideas of opportunity. So I'd be interested in the panel's uh, response to my comment. Social cohesion? I can't say nothing about that. But <laughs> <laughs> You go first. Okay. No, no, I'm deferring. Uh, I'm not sure it was a question. It was, it was certainly a correct statement. Um, um, I, you know, one, one of the subtexts of this discussion is uh, we see all this private equity developing and the like, and, uh, and so much capital is going in the private side. I, I don't see that kind of thing as a wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm getting to your social cohesion. The healthiest part of the American capital regime right now is private business. Uh, the fact that we're talking about the regulation of public companies we, is a little bit of the tail wagging the dog in my judgment. The greatest wealth engine in the world right now is private enterprise, privately held in the U.S. on a very small scale. It's, it only becomes relevant when they want to become larger public companies. So I don't think that the regulation that I'm talking about necessarily acts as an impediment or hurdle to the social cohesion for the little guy that you're talking about. The little guys I'm talking about are big. I mean, they're the people who are already a public company or subject to Sarbanes-Oxley and uh, its onerous uh, legal and accounting costs. And, by the way, the commission has tried to be very responsive to that. They've, they've, you know, they've lowered the levels and tried to be responsive. So, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, what you have to say has resonance, and I think people are listening. And to the extent it's politically feasible, they're addressing it. As Richard said, it's, you know, the president and Congress have found themselves at the precipice with regard to this being excessive and are just, uh, it's politically dangerous to take the step back from the precipice because there's a crowd pushing on the back of them. So. Thank you. Another question? Sir? Yeah, I'm Brian Walsh from the Heritage Foundation, and I'd like to address a comment and a question to um, uh, Mr. Alfauser. The, um You mentioned about the accumulation of capital throughout the uh, world yeah. and how it basically has an effect of evening the playing field. But I wonder, in your model, that you're, uh, one of the things you're not uh, accounting for is that you can't really control the variable of the, in the increased regulation, 
increased criminalization in the United States. So to say that things have evened out because there's more capital worldwide, you don't have a system that you're comparing that doesn't have the criminalization that we have. So that's one comment I'd be interested in your addressing. Second is that I don't think that your analysis um, addresses the fundamental justice issues that are at stake here, which is that um, some individual is going to go to jail, and he may have a very broad um, criminal code, very broad criminal statute, much like the fraud statutes are, et cetera, in Sarbanes, where it's very difficult. You know, one of the things that you'd mentioned is how important it is to have a mature regulatory system. I'm not sure that mature um, necessarily means that, you know, heavily regulated. Mature can mean something that's been around for a while. It's a very clear standard. It's well understood and it's predictable that, you know, the principle of legality, somebody knows how to conform their um, behavior in order to avoid violating the law. So to me, that's one of the fundamental problems with Sarbanes. I don't think it's been addressed, which is that somebody's going to go to jail for this. They don't necessarily know that their conduct is illegal. And we're using the greatest power that's available to civil government, which is the, the criminal power, criminal punishment, and saying that you're a, a, a criminal because it, you weren't at point zero one if in, in George's example or because you didn't necessarily certify, you didn't have all the information available to you. So I'd be interested in your response to those two. Um. I don't want to. I don't want to monopolize the panel. I, I think you're right on all scores. Um, I uh, there is, for, but one caveat and then one insight. I hope uh, the, the caveat is uh, it is true we have an overcriminalized system in the U.S. But I was in China when they executed somebody for embezzlement. So I mean, there, there, there is some harshness in the rest of the world. And, and by the way, China is one of the four or five nations. Uh, with an accumulation of wealth, which is staggering, and you read about it all the time, and I can affirm it. Their sovereign wealth fund is standing there with almost a trillion dollars to invest. Um, so uh, uh, it, other regimes are harsh and arbitrary without rules, point one. Point two is um, I certainly agree with you that nobody should go to jail on anything less than mens rea. I'm dead against general intent crimes, and I'm dead against anything other than, you know, um, black-hearted mens rea offenses. Nobody should go to jail for something they're unaware of, um, even in a public welfare offense. I'm on record before many juries on that when I used to practice law. Um, third thing is, and I, I, this is, I hope, the insight. You know, there's a word in China. I might butcher the word. It's, it's, some, it, it's fajur. And it translated, it means rule by law, not rule of law, rule by law. And the difference between those prepositions is enormous. The rule by law is strict, exacting, black letter, uncompromising law, and it characterizes much of China's history, which is largely imperial. One consequence of that is there was no need for a professional class of lawyers to develop in China. No need for a leavening of the law for an argument about the development of a common law. Now that China finds itself in the 21st century, and particularly in the commercial context, you see an expansion, I mean, move from rule by law to rule of law, which is what we celebrate in this room and in this society. The mandate for which is there must be a, a mature, and that's one of the reasons I'm, uh, I use the word mature, a, a maturing, learned, um, and powerful lawyer class to assist in leavening and molding the law. That we have in America, and that is one of America's greatest assets in competing with the world. Thank you. Before taking two more questions, I would like to add something about the, what Professor Kemiak raised uh, about the attitude of uh, jurisdictions and judges regarding economy 
and business and industry. Uh, you know that we had the great honor to uh, host uh, Chief John Roberts and three justices in Europe uh, during summer, especially in Paris. And then uh, uh, the, the chief and the justices had a very interesting round table in Brussels with the EU judges from Luxembourg. And uh, the topic was exactly what we are talking about today, which is uh, the way uh, the rule of law uh, can promote uh, uh, a secure and dynamic uh, commerce, trade, and uh, industry. And so I think, uh, I, I would say that today our judges are, are quite aware of the economic consequences of their uh, uh, decisions. Uh, it, was, uh, it was my privilege to be part of that discussion in Brussels, and uh, it just brought more stark the relief between the judicial attitudes because, uh, quite frankly, the American attendees, uh -huh. uh, and there were more uh, Americans than just the members of the court, the American attendees uh, were startled by the extent to which the European Court of Justice were exercising this level of sensitivity to the impact of and the untoward impact of economic regulation as an aspect of their market integration uh, uh, doctrine. Now, of course, it, it waxes and wanes. There are aspects of the European court jurisprudence that builds in mandatory requirements and, and other qualifications, so I don't want to suggest that it's night and day. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is an attitude in the European Court of Justice, which I think, while I, David used the word intoxicated, I, <laughs> I, 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 I will say that I was impressed by its sensitivity toward property rights and economic liberty uh, to, because it had been something that had so greatly disappeared from American jurisprudence since 1937. Well, just one more word. I would uh, say the same about the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I've been working on, on the Grokster case, and I, I've been really impressed by reading the, the minutes of the hearing. Uh, I've been impressed by the questions of the justices, uh, so uh, concrete and pragmatic and so close to the reality of intellectual property. Uh, and, uh, so we, we can take two more questions. Madam, please. Uh, also for Mr. Rauschauser, because really enjoyed your comments. Um, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley was passed to restore investor confidence, also to reset the role of the accountants, which was very important. It worked, restored investor confidence. Now, five years later, we're in the middle of a financial crisis, which is it's a fair comment that as we sit here today in the last few weeks, some of the major financial institutions, their stocks are down 50 percent. It's close enough to call that a crisis from mishandling of risk. And even though it's not exactly the same thing, but from an investor who's trying to have confidence in the financial statements that were put out, it feels quite a bit like the same thing. Do you think Sarbanes-Oxley was at all helpful or had any role at all in the development of the, uh, for want of a better words, just the, the financial mess that we're in now with respect to uh, Wall Street and the banks? 
No, I, 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 I don't see a causal connection. The, uh, uh, as, as you read, yeah, no, as, as you read the paper, the principal, uh, the principal problem on Wall Street with the subprime debt is that the, I'll use the same word I did with Doug, but I'll use it fairly for this purpose. <laughs> um, the, uh, the street became intoxicated with uh, a sophisticated risk um, um, uh, assessment and measurements, as did the regulators. They liked the, the metrics of the regression analysis, which basically, which basically said uh, if you have a certain position and it's hedged in a certain way, even if the hedge isn't perfectly correlated, you have no capital at risk. And people uh, kept building uh, their portfolios because of that um, correct judgment if you look at the arithmetic. Not enough people took a step back and said this is too large. Not enough people took, you know, looked at it as if you were at home with your kitchen table. But I don't think Sarbanes-Oxley would, uh, uh, would have informed that. The one thing I have been stunned by, and I can say this uh, with impunity because we were certainly not involved at all with it, is the development of these sieves. Uh, I think since you asked the question, you know what they are. It's a, it's, a, it, it, it's a mechanism to move assets off balance sheet. It's a mechanism that was developed after Enron to move assets off balance sheet. And it's a mechanism that was championed and created by the accounting profession to move assets off balance sheet and blessed by regulators. If you ask for, show me the accounting literature on sieves that justify them, you're given a book this high. And this is a post-Enron bastard child, in my judgment. And it's amazing, it's amazing that it was developed in the shadow of Enron in a perfectly legitimate and transparent way with the profession. I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. Okay. I, I, I would just make one observation, if I may, uh, in response to your question. Um, I think it probably would be a stretch to say that Sox occasioned or uh, let alone caused uh, anything. Uh, as much as I have problems with aspects of Sarbanes-Oxley, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't condemn it on that basis. But it didn't prevent it. Um, and I'll be very surprised if, as we untangle what led to the assumption of allegedly unknown or unknowable risk, uh, that there's something in SOX that would have prevented it if only somebody had complied, which illustrates the point that I don't think we can regulate to the minute degree um, that regulators and policymakers seem to think we can all risk out of the marketplace. Okay, we take the final question, sir. Yeah, uh, in this discussion regarding the uh, proper extent of regulation, don't we have to though keep in mind that there's a fundamental reason why we have any regulation, and that is that when there's lack of integrity by those in the uh, private sector to uh, follow the basic tenets of, uh, that should be expected in commerce or in the market. Why we had the SEC in the first place, why we've had reactions to the savings and loan crisis, uh, to the Enron situation, and more recently to the mortgage loan situation. And so shouldn't we, as conservatives, focus more on Yes, we're all in favor of the market, but we need to remind ourselves that uh, the excesses, when we have strayed away from the principles that we believe in, is what's brought on this regulation. And also focus more on the national interest when we see our loss of jobs abroad, the loss of the manufacturing sector, and so on. 
That's just a thought that I think needs to be expressed when we're talking about restoring American competitiveness. Thank you. Thank you. I, 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 I think that's a very valid point. And in fact, if, if we just to conclude on the same topic of the, uh, of the uh, subprime mortgage uh, dilemma, um, it would do us well to go back and look at the real source of that dilemma to begin with. Uh, which started at a very low level with national institutions out there promoting home ownership, a, obviously a distinctly American value for people who uh, could not afford it, and people fudging what are requirements of law and regulation in term of, terms of an application for credit to a bank uh, of people um, having, I forget what they're called now, but uh, these, uh, in essence, no money down loans where you borrow the down payment and you borrow uh, a, a mortgage amount. Um, all of these things contributed upstream uh, to what wound up downstream as a risk that apparently was far greater uh, than anybody uh, knew or at least what was willing to disclose. Had we enforced law and regulation that is designed on the upstream end of that process, um, to bring integrity uh, to those transactions, we might not have wound up where we are. Thank you. Very quickly, 30 seconds. No, I was I was going to say, of <laughs> course, of course, you're right. Of course, that's why we're lawyers. I mean, this is a discussion of what to calibrate. Yeah. Not, it's not a binary yes or no. We should have regs. And very quickly, Francois asked before a definition of regulation and its purpose. The definition mm -hmm. that was given was free trade, but I think the implicit assumption in free trade is always that it's bargaining in good faith and on sure. equal terms. Sure. Sure. Th thank you very much. Thank you to our panelists. Thank, uh, and I'd like to uh, uh, thank them uh, with you. <laughs> and. Uh, Th thanks to all of you, and I wish you a wonderful evening.